the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, the day after Easter. I hope your Easter Sunday Resurrection Day was as good as mine. We spent time watching several different church services on uh, online and thoroughly enjoyed that as a family and um, just rejoicing even today. Uh, over the very things that we have uh, celebrated over the last, uh, well, really weeks, but culminating in Resurrection Day yesterday. Well, today we're going to talk with Susan Alexander Yates. She is a grandparent, and she is the author of Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. I have a close friend who has done, she calls it Grandy Camp, because she's a grandma, and uh, she has the best time with her grandsons and daughters, and I've always uh, wanted to do something like that for my great nieces and nephews. I guess they're grand nieces and nephews. I can never figure out which is which. In any case, we're going to talk about it when she joins us in the 5 o'clock hour of today's program, so I hope you'll join us. First, taking a look at some of the headlines, President Trump sparked speculation about his relationship with the country's top disease expert on Sunday night after he retweeted a post that called for the doctor's job. The president used statements from Dr. Anthony Fauci in February in an effort to prove that a recent New York Times report that said he was slow to act on the coronavirus outbreak was fake news. Well, Fauci, who is, as you probably know, the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, was asked about the report on CNN and admitted that earlier action could have saved more lives. He went on to say, but there were some nuances and we didn't know a lot of things that might have made a difference. Well, the Times report said Trump played down the seriousness of the virus throughout January. Well, Deanna Lorraine, a former Republican congressional candidate, called for Fauci or called him out in her own tweet and said he told people in late February that there was nothing to worry about and it posed no threat to the U.S. public at large. Time to fire Fauci. There was a hashtag in there. Well, the president seized on her tweet as evidence of fake news from the Times. Trump implied that if there were widespread concerns about the virus in the White House in January, surely Fauci would have known in late February. And other related developments, uh, Mr. Fauci can't guarantee a physical vote in November will be safe. And the former Vice President Joe Biden And the presumptive Democratic presidential candidate outlined a plan to reopen the U.S. safely. And he slammed President Trump's initial response to the coronavirus. So some things haven't changed. Politics as usual. Well, two websites for leading universities in China seem to have published and then deleted academic research about the origins of the coronavirus. According to a report, the posts on the website of Fudan University and China University Geosciences from Wuhan were erased from online um, caches uh, in a, uh, a possible bid to control the narrative surrounding the pandemic, The Guardian reported. The Wuhan University appeared to have published and then deleted posts about academic research that uh, pointed a finger at that research as the origin of the novel coronavirus. 
and powerful storms raged across the Deep South on Easter Sunday, killing at least six people in Mississippi, damaging hundreds of buildings in Louisiana. The storm killed one person in Mississippi, um, Walthall County, two in Lawrence County, and three in Jefferson Davis County. Emergency Management Agency Director Greg Michelle says National Weather Service officials say strong winds were sweeping through other parts of Mississippi and a tornado appeared near the Alabama state line. The Weather Service reported multiple tornadoes and damaging winds over parts of Louisiana. Ultimately, companies reported thousands of power outages. There were no immediate reports of serious injuries, however. And a new, uh, the latest Fox News poll has Biden and Trump tied at 42 percent of the vote. In the prior polls, Biden had a significant lead. Also of note, this is among registered voters. The poll also indicates Trump is gaining ground among black voters. Um, meanwhile, Biden continues his trek to the far left in hopes of securing Sanders voters. By the way, Sanders endorsed him earlier today. We'll tell you more about that. Since a high of April um, 4th, the daily news cases have dropped. We're talking about the U.S. seeing new coronavirus cases start to level off. Sites with the stats, New York, Johns Hopkins, uh, World Meters, Our World in Data. The mayor of San Francisco, one of the first to, to act, is reaping the benefits. A look at South Korea's impressive decline in new cases gives us a glimpse into what we might consider doing here in the U.S. And the story notes the, an accuser suggesting that uh, former Vice President Joe Biden uh, was sexually inappropriate has filed a criminal complaint. The story notes the filing represents an escalation in Reed's allegations. That's the woman alleging the misconduct. It is illegal to file a false criminal indictment or an in, uh, incident report knowingly. Another story says one person who asked that her name be withheld by NBC News for fear of negatively affecting her business said she remembers Reed's telling her that she spoke with superiors in Biden's office about harassment but not assault. She also recalled that uh, Reed told her she filed a formal written complaint with the Senate personnel office at that time. In other coverage of the story, the New York Times deleted a tweet that wasn't completely kind to Biden without explaining why they nixed it. Doesn't take much uh, imagination to answer that question. If you're really observant, according to Molly Hemingway, you can detect a subtle difference in the way that the New York Times attempted to destroy and defame Brett Kavanaugh with no evidence and how they moved to protect Joe Biden from a former employee's accusations. Some remember well Biden's words from 2017 that he believes all accusers. We'll see where that goes in this political season. And CNN covered Tim Tebow's Easter sermon. He was the guest speaker at Passion City Church in Atlanta. Meanwhile, to their credit from ABC News, President Trump offers encouraging words to Americans in his Easter message. No matter the circumstance, we will always celebrate Easter as a time of rejuvenation, rebirth, and a renewed sense of purpose and faith. The coronavirus will not stop Easter. Again, that's a quote from ABC News. Dr. Albert Moeller says this, during this time of year, especially in the midst of a pandemic, Christians must proclaim and hold fast to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. This must be our central concern. We have received an inheritance purchased for us by Christ's penal substitutionary atonement. His death on the cross paid the price for our sins, and his resurrection on Sunday was God's declaration that through his son, death is defeated. Those who are in Christ and place their faith in him are heirs of God's promise to his people, the promise of eternal life and our own bodily resurrection from the dead in the new creation. Christians celebrate these glorious events every year, and we do so 
congregationally gather together as the body of Christ to worship God for all he has done. The year 2020, however, is quite different. While hundreds lined up at one mission in New York for a free Easter meal, a spokesperson, uh, James Winan, says typically our clientele uh, uh, it consists primarily of the homeless. Now we're seeing more and more people who were employed three or four weeks ago. And a Mississippi church is suing after police ticketed congregants. They were in their cars for a drive-in service. Attorneys at Alliance Defending Freedom filed lawsuit. John Fund noted that many of the same political figures who would never tolerate police entering churches that are giving illegal immigrants sanctuary cheered the police enforcement action. Again, these are people attending church within their cars. Meanwhile, the governor of Michigan signed a measure setting a $1,000 fine for citizens who failed to keep a six-foot distance from one another. But the picture in the story showed 10 people surrounding the governor as she signed it. They weren't six feet apart from one another. Prompting Ted Cruz to tweet, as I count it, that's $11,000 right there. And in Chicago, one of America's most violent cities, drug arrests have plummeted 42% in the week since the city shut down, compared with the same period last year. Part of that decrease, some criminal lawyers say, is that drug dealers have no choice but to wait out the economic slump. And on this day in history, 1999, right to die advocate, Dr. Jack Kevorkian is sentenced in Pontiac, Michigan, to 10 to 25 years in prison for second-degree murder and the lethal injection of a Lou Gehrig's disease patient. Kevorkian would serve eight years in prison. And 1861, at the start of the Civil War, Fort Sumter in South Carolina falls to Confederate forces. 1943, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt dictated the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., or rather dedicates on the 200th anniversary of the third American president's birth. 1964, Cindy Portier, he becomes the first black performer in a leading role to win an Academy Award for his performance in Lilies of the Field. And in 1970, Apollo 13, four-fifths of the way to the moon is crippled when a tank containing liquid oxygen bursts. The astronauts uh, did manage to return home safely. 1986, Pope John Paul II visits the Great Synagogue of Rome in the first recorded papal visit of its kind to a Jewish house of worship. 1997, Tiger Woods becomes the youngest person to win the Masters Tournament and the first player of partly African heritage to claim a major golf title. And finally, in 2018, President Trump announces that the United States, France, and Britain carried out joint airstrikes in Syria meant to punish President Bashar al-Assad for his alleged use of chemical weapons. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour, we'll talk with Susan Alexander Yates, author of Cousin Camp, a grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories that last. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on a bright and sunny Monday afternoon. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Susan Alexander Yates' Cousin Camp, a grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories at last. Well, more than a dozen confirmed tornadoes have struck from Texas to Mississippi on Sunday, damaging homes as the South faced an onslaught of severe weather, which we understood was coming uh, late last week. The National Weather Service official said 13 confirmed tornadoes had appeared in Mississippi and Louisiana, 13. The Clarion-Ledger reported the NWS, the National Weather Service, announced earlier that at least two confirmed tornadoes hit Texas. 
Well, the city of Monroe, Louisiana, announced on Twitter there were reports of damage in multiple neighborhoods after the storm moved through shortly before noon on Sunday. Uh, Please cooperate with any emergency officials who may give instructions to you or your neighbors. More details to come, the city said. Please pray for all. This is on Easter Sunday morning. The National Weather Service had declared a tornado emergency for Monroe and the surrounding communities at about 11.44 a.m. Central Daylight Time as uh, a confirmed damaging tornado was uh, hitting the area. The National Weather Service... Service officials said 20 homes in one subdivision were reported to have sustained damage and multiple uh, planes and hangars suffered damage at the regional airport. City officials said additional damage was reported at one of the uh, office buildings in the airport complex. And another photo from the city showed damage at the airport, including several aircraft that appeared to be overturned. Officials said due to weather conditions and debris removal from the runways, Major uh, Jamie Mayo and Monroe Regional Airport Director Ron Phillips announced that all flights uh, at the Monroe Regional Airport were canceled until further notice. Other images from the city revealed downed power lines in various areas. The tornado that struck Monroe as part of a powerful storm system that affected uh, the Easter holiday, bringing heavy rains, tornadoes, and hail. And again, the National Weather Service uh, Storm Prediction Center said severe thunderstorms were likely Uh, into the evening and were uh, yesterday with the greatest threat in Louisiana through the Tennessee Valley. The storm center said some 95 million people may may have been impacted by the storm. More than 5.8 million people live in the area where the most dangerous weather was most likely, uh, including uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and Jackson, Mississippi. At midday, the weather service in um, uh, Birmingham said, Radar showed strong storms moving into Alabama from Mississippi, and so they certainly did not have the bright, sunny, beautiful day we did on Resurrection Sunday morning. Well, terrified doctors on the front lines against the coronavirus are facing pay cuts, already overwhelmed by the scarcity of protective gear and the dangers of treating a highly contagious virus. Many American doctors on the front lines of COVID-19 pandemic have been dealt another punch in the gut. In recent days and weeks, doctors across the country have been notified that their pay will be slashed during the height of the coronavirus health emergency. And President Trump on Monday said that he's going to make a decision in conjunction with governors and other officials on reopening the economy shortly as the White House forms a second coronavirus task force focused on that goal, economic recovery. And more than 3,600 deaths nationwide have been linked to coronavirus outbreaks in nursing homes and long-term care facilities, an alarming rise in just the past two weeks, according to the latest count by the Associated Press. A U.S. sailor who was admitted to the intensive care unit at a Navy hospital in Guam after contracting the coronavirus has died, according to Navy officials today. Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, I believe I've introduced him as Dr. Robert Redford in the past, but you know who I mean. He told Fox and Friends the coronavirus outbreak has stabilized nationwide. He added that the virus has not peaked yet, but we're close. We'll talk more about that in the Pacific Northwest later in the program as well. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer doubled down on their calls for an interim emergency coronavirus relief package on Monday, renewing their efforts to get more than $500 billion in additional funding for Americans, businesses, and hospitals amid the pandemic. And China on Monday reported its largest uptick in new coronavirus infections in more than a month, but said most of the cases are imported. 
Hmm. And some good news from uh, Britain. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has tested negative for the coronavirus. His spokesman James Slack said on Monday, one day after Johnson was released from the hospital. And there were several other developments. Mississippi and Louisiana, two states dealing with an increase in coronavirus cases, were hit Sunday. ABC News Good Morning America co-host George Stephanopoulos, he announced that he tested positive for coronavirus but feels great and currently doesn't have any symptoms. And a new study by the CDC suggests that coronavirus can travel 13 feet in the air and live on shoes. They're now recommending we remove our shoes when we enter our homes. And social distance, more than six feet, consider that 13 feet spread. On Easter Sunday, a Kentucky church that defied coronavirus orders from Kentucky Governor Andy Brashear uh, by holding an in-person service was met with a heavy police presence and nails at the entrance of the parking lot. And the experimental coronavirus treatment, uh, Laron Linab, uh, has shown a very promising, and that's in quotes, very promising response in COVID-19 patients with a mild to moderate symptoms, according to the developer, Cytodyne. So another drug is uh, showing some promise of relieving symptoms. It doesn't cure COVID-19. It simply makes uh, the symptoms, which can result in one's mortality, it eases them somewhat in some patients' Well, as I mentioned, the coronavirus pandemic has resulted in public health and government officials all across the country recommending social distancing practices of at least six feet. But a new study, however, suggests that SARS-CoV-2 virus was detected in the air 13 feet from patients. Now, the research published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the maximum transmission distance of SARS-CoV-2 aerosol could be four meters or 13 feet. Well, the virus was also found present on the floor of the ICU unit in a hospital in Wuhan, China, and on the soles of healthcare professionals, according to the study, which was conducted in February through the 2nd of this month, or I should say last month. In addition, a medical staff walked around the ward. The virus can be tracked all over the floor, and uh, as indicated by the 100% rate of positivity from the floor in the pharmacy where there were no patients, researchers wrote in this study. Furthermore, half of the samples from the soles of the ICU medical staff shoes tested positive. Therefore, the soles of medical staff shoes might function as carriers. The three weak positive results from the floor of uh, dressing room four might also arise from these carriers. Uh, We highly recommend that patients disinfect shoe soles before walking out of wards containing COVID-19 patients. And then, of course, as you're removing the shoes or placing the shoes on your feet, that needs to be taken into consideration. Perhaps gloves should be worn, given the fact that uh, the shoes did carry the virus. Researchers also discovered the virus was widely distributed on floors, computer mice, um, trash cans, and sickbed handrails. A separate research that was published in March warned that droplets of the novel coronavirus could travel as far as 27 feet, That study, conducted by researchers at MIT, raised eyebrows in the medical community, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who urged caution on the findings. This could really be terribly misleading, he said back in uh, late March, White House press briefing, adding that it would apply only to people with extremely strong sneezes. As of Monday morning, more than 1.86 million coronavirus cases Virus cases, rather, have been diagnosed worldwide, including more than 557,000 in the U.S., the most impacted country on the planet.
Well, not surprisingly, the federal debt has topped $24 trillion for the first time in our nation's history. The uh, Government Accounting Office says the current federal fiscal path is unsustainable. The debt of the federal government topped $24 trillion for the first time on Tuesday last week when it climbed to, well, $23 trillion, you can get the rest. According to data released by the um, Treasury Department, on Wednesday it continued climbing, ascending to $24 trillion. The federal debt climbed from $23 trillion threshold to the $24 trillion threshold was the fastest climb for $1 trillion marker to another in the history of the federal debt, taking only 159 days. The second fastest jump from $1 trillion threshold to another was when the debt climbed from the $10 trillion mark in September of 2008 to the $11 trillion mark in March of 2009. That climb from $1 trillion threshold to another took 167 days. The federal debt first topped $23 trillion just Five months ago, in November 2019, on that day, the debt rose uh, once again. I should say March of 2018, when it rose to $20 trillion, from, uh, rather from $20 trillion to $21 trillion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My timer tells me it's time to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward in the 5 o'clock hour to a conversation with Susan Alexander Yates, author of Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. So looking forward to that. Well, President Trump today said that he would make a decision in conjunction with governors and other officials on reopening the economy shortly as the White House forms a second coronavirus task force focused on that goal. Well, for the purpose of creating conflict and confusion, some of the fake news media are saying that it is the governor's decision to open up the states, not that of the president of the United States and the federal government. He tweeted on Monday, let it be fully understood that this is incorrect. It is the decision of the president and for many good reasons. He continued, with that being said, the administration and I are working closely with governors and this will continue. Well, the dispute has continued as well as to whether or not the president has final authority or the governors. That won't be resolved today. He went on, however, to add a decision by me in conjunction with the governors and input from others will be made shortly. So he does plan to include their counsel. And uh, in fact, governors from one region of the country met, um, led by Governor Cuomo earlier today to discuss uh, the direction they see those states going in the short term as well as the long. Well, the president's uh, tweets comes after the opening our country task force uh, is forming at the uh, at the White House. Sources say that the second task force, which the president first teased last Friday and is set to be formally introduced tomorrow, will be chaired by White House Chief Counsel Mark Meadows. The task force, according to sources, will also include members of President Trump's cabinet, including Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, Energy Secretary Dan Bruletta, Labor Secretary Gene Scalia, Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, and Acting Director of the Office of Management and Budget Russ Voigt. Well, the task force is also expected to include acting chair of the Council of Economic Advisors Tom Phillipson and White House advisors Larry Kudlow, Peter Navarro, Chris Liddell, Jared Kushner, and Ivanka Trump. A source said that it's unclear whether there will be uh, people from outside the government officially brought into the council or 
that they will only be included in the consultation process. The president first announced the task force uh, on Friday during a coronavirus task force briefing, saying that he understands the gravity of the situation as he prepares to make a decision on whether to ease social distancing guidelines to open the economy, which has been largely shuttered in many states to curb transmission. I would say without question, it's the biggest decision I've made, uh, I've ever had to make. Uh, It's been my honor to be the president of the United States, the um, uh, president for the American people. I have a big decision coming up, and I only hope to God that it's the right decision. Well, the White House last month announced it extended its guidelines to slow the spread to April 30th. The president vowed on Friday to listen to experts should they recommend a further extension of the White House social distancing guidelines. The president went on to vow that he would listen to experts before making any decisions, saying we're not doing anything until we know that this country is going to be healthy. You don't want to go back and start doing it over again. Well, as of today, the U.S. reported more than 558,000 positive cases of COVID-19 and more than 22,100 deaths. Well, as I mentioned, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, along with governors of New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Delaware, announced a regional effort to eventually reopen the economy in a coordinated way amid the coronavirus crisis. Well, during a press conference on Monday, Cuomo announced that states will begin to coordinate efforts to reopen society. We should start looking forward to reopening, but reopening with a plan and a smart plan, because if you do it wrong, it can backfire. What the art form is going to be here is doing that smartly and doing that productively and doing that in in a coordinated way, in coordination with each other, with the other states in the area and doing it uh, as a a cooperative effort where we learn from each other, um, others uh, from each other, where we share information, share resources, where we share intelligence, end quote. He went on to say no one has done this before. It's one step forward after research and consultation with experts. I'm not a public health expert, but this has to be informed by them. Cuomo said that each state will name an economic developer and a health official that will be led by a uh, governor's chief of staff to form a working group that will start work immediately on designing a reopening plan while taking into consideration the public health concerns and issues and the economic reactivation issues and concerns. New Jersey Governor uh, Phil Murphy, he called the coronavirus crisis the fight of our lives, while noting that reopening ourselves back up will be equally challenging. Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont, he also noted the importance of establishing the same protocol between states, specifically New York and New Jersey, due to many residents in the tri-state area commuting to and from New York City for work. Working together makes the most sense, doing it methodically, but doing this now, Lamont added, while underscoring the importance of making sure you don't pull the trigger too early. And, of course, that is the caution for all states and the federal government. As of Monday, New York reported more than 190,288 positive cases of COVID-19 and more than 10,000 deaths. New Jersey reported 61,800 positive cases, 2,300 deaths. And Connecticut reported more than 12,000 cases, uh, 550 deaths. The regional effort also includes Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Rhode Island. Governor uh, Cuomo said earlier in the day uh, that there are specific objectives that should be met as part of a reopening plan. These include easing isolation, increasing New York's economic activity, expanding the category of essential workers, and having greater testing as well as precautions so as not to increase the rate of infection. He also said that that eventual plan would be designed by public health officials and economic experts, not politicians. 
Well, last week in Connecticut, Governor Lamont, he signed an executive order extending the state's social distancing guidelines and closures of businesses and schools to at least the 20th of May to further curb the spread of COVID-19 in the nutmeg state. Returning to normal too soon will have too many negative consequences, he warned last week and solidified today. Meanwhile, as politics roll on, Senator Bernie Sanders endorsed, you guessed it, Joe Biden for president on Monday, less than a week after suspending his own campaign for the Democratic Party nomination. Well, the Vermont senator, he made the announcement during a live stream virtual event with the former Vice President Biden. We are in terrible moments, an unprecedented moment, and I know we share the under- share the understanding that we have to go forward right now and out of this in an unprecedented way to address the terrible pain that so many of our fellow Americans are feeling, Sanders said at that joint event. So today, I am asking all Americans, I'm asking every Democrat, and I'm asking every Independent, I'm asking a lot of Republicans to come together in this campaign to support your candidacy, which I endorse, to make certain that we defeat somebody who I believe, and I'm speaking just for myself now, this is Bernie Sanders, is the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country, end quote. Well, the announcement settled speculation on whether and when Sanders would formally back his former primary rival. He notably did not endorse when he suspended his campaign last week. And a curious moment during the announcement, Sanders even stressed the importance of continuing to win delegates for his own campaign so he'd be able to exert influence on the primary platform. But Biden was visibly reaching out to um, his supporters, adjusting his own campaign platform in a bid to make it more appealing to progressive voters, many of whom have backed Sanders. Biden said in a statement last week that Sanders and his supporters changed the dialogue. He said, but more than any one issue or set of issues, I want to commend Bernie for being a powerful voice for a fairer and more just America. It's voices like Bernie's that refuse to allow us to just accept what is, that refuse to accept we can't change what's wrong in our nation, that refuse to accept the health and well-being of our fellow citizens and our planet isn't our uh, responsibility too. That's a direct quote. It seems a little confused, but Bernie um, gets a lot of credit for his passionate advocacy for the issues he cares about, but he doesn't get enough credit for being a voice that forces us all to take a hard look in the mirror and ask if we've done enough. Again, a quote from the former vice president and presumptive uh, leader in the effort to gain the party's nomination. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll tell you what's happening in the states of Oregon and Washington. In fact, Governors Brown, Inslee, and Newsom have formed a West PAC, much like what I've just described, on the East Coast. We'll tell you more about that. Also anticipating our conversation with Susan Alexander Yates, we're going to talk about Cousin Camp. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, a conversation with Susan Alexander Yates. She's a popular speaker, but she's also the author of Cousin Camp, a grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories that last. That's uh, next hour. Well, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, along with Washington Governor Jay Inslee, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced an agreement on a shared path toward reopening each state's economy while continuing to control the spread of COVID-19. Now, this is very much like what we witnessed with uh, Governor Cuomo and governors from that region of the country. Well, the three West Coast states outlined a joint set of principles in a statement that was issued earlier today that read, Our residents' health comes first. 
as home to no um, one in six Americans and a gateway to the rest of the world, the West Coast has an outsized stake in controlling and ultimately defeating COVID-19. Health outcomes and science, not politics, will guide these decisions. Modifications to our state's stay-at-home orders must be made based off our understanding of the total health impacts of COVID-19, including the direct impact of the disease on our communities, the health impact of measures introduced to control the spread in our communities, particularly felt by these already experiencing social disadvantage prior to COVID-19, and our healthcare system's ability to ensure care for those who may become sick with COVID-19 and other conditions. This effort will be guided by data. We need to see a decline in the rate of spread of the virus before uh, before large-scale reopening, and we will be working in coordination to identify the best metrics to guide this. Our states will only be effective by working together. Each state will work with its local leaders and communities within its borders to understand what's happening on the ground and adhere to our agreed-upon approach. Through quick and decisive action, each of our states has made significant progress in flattening the curve and slowing the spread of COVID-19 among the uh, borders, uh, the broader public. Now, our public um, health leaders will focus on four goals that will be critical for controlling the virus in the future. And those goals, they articulated in this agreement, protecting vulnerable populations at risk for severe disease if infected. This includes a concerted effort to prevent and fight outbreaks in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities, ensuring an ability to care for those who may become sick with COVID-19 and other conditions. This will require adequate hospitals, uh, surge capacity, and supplies of personal protective equipment. Mitigating the non-direct COVID-19 health impacts, particularly on disadvantaged communities. And finally, protecting the general public by ensuring any successful lifting of interventions includes the development of a system for testing, tracking, and isolating. The states will work together to share best practices. The statement said, uh, though the framework is shared, Oregon, Washington, and California will be building a state-specific plan. So this is very much like what we heard earlier in the day from Governor Cuomo and governors he is overseeing. Meanwhile, Oregon has had 52 deaths as of this morning, 1,527 cases of COVID-19, 29,758 tests, and among the 28,000, 28,000 tested negative. In Washington, there have been 508 deaths, a marked increase uh, over Oregon's numbers, 52 in Oregon, 508 in Washington, 10,411 uh, cases, 87,800 tests, with 77,000 of them testing negative. In the United States, there have been 22,000 deaths, and I'm rounding uh, rounding up 557 cases uh, worldwide. There have been 115,000 deaths um, again worldwide. Now, many pot shops have seen a steady increase in sales during COVID-19. 420 is uh, right around the corner, and dispensaries are doing what they can to help keep people safe on the biggest holiday of the year for the cannabis industry. I didn't know they had a holiday, but apparently they do. Cannabis consumers are encouraged to order online. Many retailers also offer delivery and so on. I don't need to go into all of that, but they're anticipating um, a big celebration. I'm not sure how you do that under the current circumstances, but there has been, which is more significant part of the story, an increase in sales during COVID-19. We're still waiting to receive our stimulus checks. The IRS has started sending out the checks and they uh, plan to launch an online tool 
later this month. That will be on Friday, the 17th. It's called Get My Payment, and that's going to let you check the status of your stimulus check. And again, that's Get My Payment. We'll tell you more about that. And newly unemployed Oregonians are encountering um, further trouble with the state system for filing jobless claims benefits over the weekend, reporting that the state told them to start over with their applications, even if they had already been receiving benefits. Well, the department's website acknowledges a problem and says a fix is coming soon, but soon is not today. Well, aggressive social distancing restrictions have helped Oregon avert thousands of new cases of coronavirus and hundreds of additional hospitalizations and should continue for at least six more weeks to prevent a resurgence of the epidemic. Yes, you heard me. Should continue at least six more weeks. That's according to the latest estimates. Well, new projections released on Saturday by the Oregon Health Authority show that the state has avoided 18,000 new cases of the highly contagious virus and as many as 500 hospitalizations since strict social distancing measures were imposed last month. Now, the figures are just estimates, but once um, public health officials pay close attention to those estimates, the Institute for Disease uh, Modeling found that aggressive measures have essentially reversed the course of growth of the epidemic, and that without them, the state's hospital system would have likely become overwhelmed by late April. The measures are working, and we know people need to continue those measures at least through the middle of May. That's Dr. Dean Seidlinger, who is the state health officer and epidemiologist. So if you're wondering, what's the timeline here? Again, I quote uh, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, the measures are working. We know people need to continue those measures at least through the middle of May. Now, the efforts have led to a plateau of new coronavirus cases in Oregon, though the state isn't expected to see a drop-off in numbers for at least Six weeks, according to Bellevue, Washington-based research center that is part of the Global Food Fund, a collaboration that involves Bill and Melinda Gates. Oregon's recent donation of ventilators to New York is a strong testament to the success of its early and forceful control measures, the authors wrote. They also estimate that Oregon has 7,000 infections, vastly more than the 1,400 that have been identified through testing. The report says Oregon likely Um, saw its first case of the virus before February, earlier than previously thought, but of course not tested or verified. Well, the latest estimates show that social distancing, sheltering at home, are reducing the course of the coronavirus in the state of Oregon. The authors did warn against relaxing the restrictions, saying such a move is likely to result in epidemic resurgence. They stress the urgent need for enormously increased testing capacity, before the state considers easing social distancing efforts. And they added that Oregon officials uh, must also conduct detailed contact tracing, test asymptomatic at-risk people, and quarantine those who are infected. It will not be possible to relax social distancing measures and avoid an epidemic rebound without significantly increased testing, the report says. Well, Dr. Seidlinger says that he is encouraged by the latest estimates, which show the aggressive social distancing measures in place and the sacrifices people are making to follow those are having an impact in Oregon. The report estimates that current case numbers have been reduced by 55% to 75% compared to what they would have been without such um, measures. He said spring weather is hard to resist, but urged residents to continue to stay at home beyond essential trips. Oregonians really crave those early spring days, and we are hoping that they can delay some of that gratification, maybe enjoy it from an open window, their balcony, front porch, or backyard, and do it in a way where they are distant from their community. Wait until summer, he advises, 
to really go out and enjoy the park and take full advantage of the weather. We hope by then people can move around more safely in their communities if we continue to work together to stay home to flatten that infamous curb. Now, we did learn last week, and I have yet to see an update, and again, we're talking about the state of Oregon, uh, but the state confirmed last week, and this was updated on the 8th, that the new coronavirus has spread to at least 34 senior care homes throughout Oregon, and nearly 90 homes are under investigation for possible cases. The Oregon Department of uh, Human Services still has not provided basic information that could alert the public about the extent of the exposure so families and others who need to know can protect residents and themselves. Uh, but again, it's just a sobering reminder that this is a very serious issue uh, that needs to be handled. And finally, in the state of Oregon, layoffs have hit another record. One in eight workers have lost their jobs during the coronavirus outbreak here in the state of Oregon. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back after news and traffic. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, second hour. This hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Susan Alexander Yates. She has some great resource that might help you not just this summer, but now. The book is called Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. Susan Alexander Yates will join me um, quarter past the first Half of this hour. Yeah, I guess that's the right way to say that. Anyway, you get the idea. Well, in the past three weeks alone, one in eight Oregon workers lost their jobs. That's according to new data out this past Thursday. It's the latest illustration of the state's economic devastation with the coronavirus outbreak. Well, jobless claims have been running at record levels since the middle of March as Oregon hunkered down to contain the spread. There's growing evidence that the shutdown has sharply reduced the spread of the virus, potentially saving thousands of lives, but it's come at a profound economic cost. Well, the state fielded a record 100,700 claims last week. That's up from record levels in each of the prior two weeks. Altogether, the state has received nearly 270,000 claims in the past three weeks, equivalent to 13.4% of all jobs in the state of Oregon. Well, by comparison, Oregon suffered fewer than 150,000 job losses throughout the Great Recession. Well, restaurants, spars, retail shops are the first to close, and that's where jobless claims first spiked last month. The latest numbers show that cataclysm was uh, spreading to all parts of the economy. This week alone, the Multnomah Athletic Club laid off 600. Um, Evraz laid off 230 at its Portland steel mill. Rail car maker Gunderson eliminated nearly 200 Portland jobs. Precision Cast Parts set plans to close its main Portland plant. As dismal as the numbers are, they likely understate the severity of the crisis. The volume of layoffs has completely overwhelmed Oregon's jobless claim system, with phone lines swamped as an anticipated computer system struggles to adapt to recent changes in the benefits program. Well, that means many laid-off workers haven't been able to file and aren't yet counted in the data. Well, the employment department says the system is frequently giving newly laid off workers incorrect information about the status of their claims, which has to be very frustrating. And the phone lines, uh, they're jammed. Workers have little opportunity to seek clarification or corrections. Limbo, I think, is the word that comes to mind. Still, the employment department said it paid out $28 million in benefits last week, expects that total to rise sharply in the weeks ahead. The department apologized on Thursday for the delay and the confusion in processing claims. 
And it said it had created a new web page with information for people having trouble filing. Well, nationally, 16.8 million people filed for jobless claims in the past three weeks. That's more than one in 10 workers nationally lost their jobs during this period. Well, the Federal CARES Act, which was passed by Congress last week, provided funding for states to waive the typical one-week waiting uh, period before their claims start paying benefits. But Oregon says it's going to, uh, it's uh, will not waive the waiting week because its computer system can't accommodate the change without further delays in processing new claims. So not going to work here in Oregon. Well, the department did say Thursday that it will begin processing the new $600 benefit payments Congress authorized last month by the end of this week. And there's going to be a website, I'll tell you about it in a minute, that will allow you to check and see when will my uh, check most likely either show up in my account or arrive in the mail. Economists uh, say that the depth of Oregon's recession will depend on just how long the shutdown lasts. And as you heard a moment ago, um, they're predicting a minimum of six weeks. And that's uh, based on the trajectory of the, the virus. The sudden stop of the economy sends us into a severe recession overnight. That's what Josh Lerner says. He's a state economist. He wrote an analysis earlier this week. Even after some restrictions are lifted on how people interact and where they can go, he said normal activity may not return for an indefinite period, perhaps until a vaccine or effective treatment emerges. Uh, this initial bounce back likely takes the economy from near depression level uh, readings up to something resembling a severe or bad recession. From there, the economy sees slow or moderate rates of growth until the health situation is under control. For example, you may not want to go to a theater to see a movie for some time. You may not want to go to a crowded restaurant, but you will be willing to do some other things. So we'll just have to wait to see. Well, sin is always in the world, and the FBI advisory is citing so-called business email compromise schemes as a kind of email fraud that targets funds transfers, often large sums, with businesses. In a typical scenario, you get an email that appears to be from a company or individual you normally do business with. The hitch is the scammer will request funds to be sent to a new account or otherwise alters the state, uh, the standard payment practices, according to the FBI. Well, they pointed to an increase in fraud aimed at municipalities purchasing personal protective equipment or other supplies needed in the fight against COVID-19. Well, in a recent example that was cited by the FBI, there was a financial institution that received an email purportedly from a CEO who had scheduled a transfer of $1 million. Well, the fraudster requested that the transfer date be moved up and that the account receiving the funds be changed due to the coronavirus outbreak and quarantine processes and precautions. The FBI said, quoting the fraudulent email, one of the most devious tricks in the bad guy's bag of tricks is using an email address that looks the same as the legitimate email. In the case cited by the FBI, the email address was almost identical to the CEO's actual email address with only one letter change. So make sure you're checking those emails. Hackers love emergencies and times of uncertainty because people are scared, they're distracted, they're vulnerable, they make um, make them ideal targets. Um, so we need to be very, very careful. Some of the ruses used by cyber criminals, such as the fraudulent third party, where hackers will impersonate people within an organization or supplier and vendors associated with the company, and secure IT support where bad actors will pretend to be the company's IT support and send malicious links to employees. Other schemes include the out-of-office boss and the helpful government organization. So bottom line, beware. 
Meanwhile, the FBI has uncovered an international coronavirus-fueled fraud scheme after more than 39 million masks promised to a powerful California union representing healthcare workers were never delivered to hospitals and other medical groups in the state, according to a report that was published this weekend. Well, Service Employees International Union United Healthcare Workers West announced uh, late last month it had identified a distributor overseas who was willing to sell 39 million critically needed N95 masks. The press release said, well, the union said it secured the deal after 48 hours calling leads and potential suppliers to help find personnel protection equipment for healthcare workers on the front lines of the crisis. An unidentified businessman in Pittsburgh reportedly had uh, was helping the union contact a broker in Australia, a distributor in Kuwait, on WhatsApp to secure the deal. U.S. Attorney Scott Brady of the Western District of Pennsylvania says, We believe we disrupted the fraud. We're seeing fraud in every variation, but mostly in respect to N95 masks. We have an anxious public and resources are strained. As part of the deal, Kaiser Permanente said that they plan to purchase 6 million masks. Sutter Health officials also placed an order for 2 million ma- uh, masks. Meanwhile, SEIU um, South, uh, Southern California uh, Union of Registered Nurses launched an online petition accusing hospitals who did not agree to take part in the deal of putting bottom line uh, profits before their safety. Well, it turns out the whole thing was a scam. And there are always those who would exploit uh, these kinds of situations. Well, as I mentioned, the IRS deposited the first economic impact payments into taxpayer bank accounts today. Uh, the IRS wrote on its official Twitter account, you know, many people are anxious to get their payments. We'll continue issuing them as fast as we can. The payments will be $1,200 per adult for those uh, with adjusted gross incomes of $75,000 um, or up to the threshold for married couples, $150,000 They're eligible for $2,400 and $500 per child. Well, how do you find out if your stimulus check has, in fact, been uh, moved forward? The IRS is planning to launch an online tool. That's this Friday, the 17th. It's called Get My Payment. That will let you know um, the status of the check or your payment. Get My Payment, and you'll find that on the IRS website. But beware, uh, there are fraudsters who would try to mimic that website. Then one final question with regard to those payments. Um, will you owe taxes on the coronavirus stimulus cash? People are asking the question. Well, the short answer is no, you will not owe income taxes on the cash and do not need to include it as part of your taxable income on your 2020 return. Therefore, it also will not affect the size of your refund. So keep that in mind. But apparently the check is either in the mail or will soon be Uh, sent to your uh, account online. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're talk with uh, Susan Alexander Yates. She's the author of Cousin Camp, a grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories that last. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to be talking about a book called Cousin Camp. Now, does that sound like the funnest thing ever? It's a grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories that last. Now, my next guest asked the question, are your children and grandchildren scattered across the country? Are they right down the street? No matter where they are, if you long for more time, more fun, more memories with the ones you love, Cousin Camp is the answer. Now, I have a friend who has, she calls it Grandy Camp. 
She's done this for years, and oh, what a connection she has with her grandchildren. Well, this inspiring book from popular speaker, parenting expert, and grandmother, Susan Alexander Yates, is a practical guide for creating special events that will help you develop meaningful, lasting connections with your extended family. It is full of specific, doable ideas and hilarious stories. The book contains everything you need to know from initial planning, who, when, and where, to daily schedules, to specific ways to build friendships among family members. You'll also find plenty of suggestions for a variety of gatherings, as well as activities specifically designed for mothers of young children. Well, close-knit family bonds don't just happen by accident. You need to start creating yours today. Well, I'm just delighted to have Susan Alexander Yates with us today. She is a popular speaker, the author of several books, including And Then I Had Kids and And Then I Had Teenagers. She's a regular guest on Family Life Today and other national radio programs. She lives with her husband, John, in Falls Church, Virginia, and joins us to talk about Cousin Camp, a grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories that last. Susan Alexander Yates, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Georgine, for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I have as well. Now, let's start at the beginning. Um, Tell us how Cousin Camp came about and why this is so important for us to consider if we really have a heart to have deep, lasting friendships with our children and grandchildren. (laughs) Well, that's a great question. Um, My husband and I have five children. We actually have five kids in seven years. So it was a little crazy for us a season. (laughs) And as our children were born, and as we've raised them, they're, they're all grown now and all married. But our main family vision has been that the kids, our kids and now our grandkids would love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, mind, and soul, and then their neighbor as themselves. And when we think about neighbors, I think our closest neighbors are the people we live with and then our extended family. So our family vision has been that our kids would love the Lord and then that they'd love each other and care for each other. So it was really out of this desire that we created Cousin Camp. We we actually have 21 grandchildren, oh which my. is kind of crazy. <laughs> but we started camp with five children from three different families because we wanted our kids, because they live in different states, we wanted them to know one another. So the first year, we just had five. For our camp, you have to be four years old to come because um, we didn't want to deal with uh, wet beds or um, kids up all night long, and we wanted them reasonably obedient because it would make <laughs> it much more fun for the bigger kids. Yeah, yeah. Now, in the book, I tell a lot of stories of people who do, do this differently, and so I think it's really important to figure out what's best for your family. We We have friends who started with just the girl cousins one summer, and they did it for just 24 hours. And theirs were younger. So it just depends on your own unique situation. And I talk a lot in the book about how you discern what's right for your situation. But we began with five. They were all, I think we had two four-year-olds, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old or something like that. And they come in for three nights and four days. And then the, the rest of the families come in for an extended family camp. But that's how we began. We've been doing it for 11 years, and now uh, we have 21 that attend. So <laughs> it's, it's really fun. 
Oh, my, that just sounds daunting. And I'm sure some of our listeners are quaking at the thought of uh, of hosting young kids for that period of time. Talk about, as you write about in the book, the ingredients that you need before you start planning a family gathering. Well, it's important to have your own vision for what you want. And I know right now, as we're in sort of this crisis with the virus, it's all you can do to think about, oh, my goodness, how can I just get through today? But actually, Georgine, the book has a lot of ideas that Mm -hmm. moms who are at home with kids right now can use. Um, One of the things that we have done is each year a child comes to camp, their first year they get a journal. And I just buy blank journals at some inexpensive store and I put a photograph, I glue a photograph to the front of each journal. The journals are, are used throughout camp. We have Bible study in the morning and Actually, in the book, I give three simple Bible studies, which parents at home today could use. Um, and the kids write in their journals. Another thing that we've done is we have buddies. The younger kids always have an older buddy who sits with them at Bible study, who helps them write, write you know, the theme verse, color pictures, who helps them do other just tasks like um, how to fill their own water bottle, uh, serving their plates at mealtimes, checking on them throughout the day. And what's been so surprising to me is our buddy system has become one of the most favorite things about camp. And this was a total surprise. Often in the spring, I'll get a call from one of my grandchildren on the telephone, and they'll say, who's going to be my buddy at camp this summer? (laughs) They love the buddy system. And, you know, we didn't know that's what would happen. We started the the buddy system for our own survival. So (laughs) that's, you know, one of the things. So I think in planning, you think through who you want to attend, how, where you'll have it, how you'll get them there. And my encouragement is you can do this no matter whether you live in an apartment, a house. We happen to have a little tiny farm that we use. You can do it anywhere and you can do it with any number of children. And the most important thing is to start small. Don't be daunted or overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. You might, for your first camp, have it one night or two nights. So it's going to be different for everyone. But in the book, I talk about, I have, for example, 13 stories from people who've done it differently. And also just a whole section on family reunions. They might be intergenerational. They might be just cousin reunions. It could be nuclear family. It could be... Any, there's a lot of diversity, so there's not just one way to do it. Yeah. Again, we're talking about the book titled Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. One of the things that you suggest in the first part of the book is balancing realistic expectations uh, with surprises. I suppose that's true for the grandparents who are hosting the camp, and uh, it's true for those who are planning to come to the camp. Why is it important to balance expectations, and how do you do that? Well, sometimes you learn from your mistakes. Um, I remember the first time we had camp, I cleaned my house thoroughly. I put flowers in every room, even in the bathrooms. I was so excited to have a clean house, you know, to show off to my adult children who were dropping their young kids for camp. I called my friend Elaine. I said, come down and see my house. It's perfect. And she came down and oohed and odd like a good girlfriend does. And then she went home, and then the kids started coming. And in came the mud, the upteen <laughs> tennis shoes, the backpacks, all the stuff. And within 30 minutes, my house was trashed. Nobody noticed anything, not the parents, not the kids. 
I called my friend Elaine back up. I said, walk over here really quickly. I want you to see what just happened. And so she came over and just looked at the house and we just laughed. And, you know, (laughs) at that point, Georgie, I had to decide, do I want to have a clean house or do I want to have happy kids and not walk through camp nagging them? And I had had to decide to let my expectation of a clean house go because the real thing that was the most important was that they have fun together. So ever since then, I have never cleaned my house right before camp. (laughs) But I'm sure you had a thorough cleaning right after camp. Oh, yeah. After (laughs) camp, it takes forever to get it put back together. It's totally trashed. (laughs) We're going to take a break here in just a moment. little things. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, uh, but we will return. We're talking with Susan Alexander Yates. This is a great book, and I appreciate that you point out that this uh, this book contains ideas that can be used now under our new normal uh, for parents and grandparents who are with their children. Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. The book is published by Ravel. You could get online and order it right now, and you'll find it a great resource uh, for now or perhaps for a uh, the day when we all hope that's coming sooner than later when we can come together face to face again. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking about a delightful book, Cousin Camp, a grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories that last. If you've always thought this sort of idea is way over your head, this is a resource that is very practical and doesn't just give you one way to pull it off, but many ways that uh, are being used by folks all across the country. Now, let me ask you about um, uh, the where to get started. I think as, as parents and grandparents might be listening, they're wondering, now, where would you start to prepare to host this kind of an event? That's a great question, Georgine. And I'll just say two things in answer to that. One, the book is full, as you mentioned, of things that parents can do right now while we're Mm -hmm. sort of all sheltering in place. So there's help for you right now, and I know some grandparents are unexpectedly needing to do child care. There's help for you right now in the book. But then there's hope for the future, because one of the things that we need in the situation we're in right now is hope for the future. One day when we will be able to see extended family. So you can do two things. You can flip through the book and find things you can do right now in your situation, but you can also flip through the book and get ideas for your family get-together, asking the questions, we want to have a family reunion. Who would that involve? Where is the best place to have it? How is the best place to do it? Who should we invite? And one of the great things is that I think during this pandemic, we've realized how important family is. Perhaps we've been so busy, Mm -hmm. we've neglected family. And so it's giving us a yearning to reconnect. And I encourage people to just believe that God can redeem anything. Some of our listeners are coming from very broken places, and perhaps they don't get along with a sibling or an adult child. But no matter what you come from, you can be the first of a generation of healthy families. Our God is a God who redeems. And so the first thing to adopt is an attitude of grace. We're going to just reach out with grace to any family member that might remotely be interested in getting together at a certain time. And I talk about how to do that and what you do if you don't exactly get along with this family member. 
how do you broach the subject and what's the best way to do it? One of the things I found is even if perhaps you have two adult children who don't get along, they probably in a little space in their heart want their children to know each other. And so one of the blessings of being grandparents is we can say, hey, we want to just have our grandchildren for a certain time. And so you begin to build relationships between the next generation and often given time, and we have to be patient, but given time, that will spill over into healing into a generation that is not quite getting along. Mm. One of the blessings for us as grandparents in getting together with our grandchildren is that we can get away with things that their parents can't. You know, you don't. You, your teenager, your twelve or thirteen year old, is not as likely to roll an eye and say, "Oh, do we have to?" To a grandmother or a grandfather, as they might to a parent. So we have space to do creative things and have kids that tend can tend to be more cooperative. So that's one of the real blessings in this season. Now, tell us about how you have held Bible study time during camp with different ages and different attention spans, or even if yeah. you've had some children say, ah, I'm really not interested or, or uh, trying to back out. Yeah, well, that's a great question. One, it's just a part of our daily schedule. We post, you know, all the kids want to see what are we doing next. So we always post the schedule on the cabinet, and we have done Bible study since the beginning, so that's an expected schedule thing. And yes, there will always be children who are more interested than others. But one of the things that comes into play is peer pressure. And often a cousin who's eight or nine will be more interested than a six or seven-year-old, but that six or seven-year-old can interest can be piqued because he sees his bigger cousin a little more interested. Mm-hmm. So it's a place that positive peer pressure comes to play. But what you do with a reticent child is treat it lightly with humor. You can say, oh, you know what? I know you might not like this, but it's really going to be fun, and we're only going to do it for 20 minutes. I know you can do this. So you don't get offended. You use humor, and you just persist. Um, It's expected. It's, It's just like eating is expected. Bedtimes are expected. So you also, it's really important that you make your Bible study time short, brief, and fun. You have a verse, you ask questions, it's not a lecture time. We have the kids share how they have come to know the Lord, um, and some haven't yet, and they, their ears perk up, and we've had some who have accepted Christ at Cousin Camp, mm. and we, one of the first things we do is we have them write down their experience about how they ask our staff Jesus into their home. I actually, in the book, have a whole plan of a very natural way to share Christ. It's all written out right in the book. It makes it easy. It makes it natural. That's another thing I love about these kids is they're just upfront and natural. And so it's very matter-of-fact. And as our camp, once we got into the third and fourth year of camp, at our very first Bible study, we would say, okay, who wants to look back in your journal? Our journals live at our house. They don't go home. That's an important tip because the kids will lose them at home. So they live at our house, and now on our shelf we have 21 journals. And each year the kids come back and they look at their journals from five years earlier and just laugh at how ridiculous <laughs> their handwriting was and their picture was. But every year at our first Bible study we have testimony time, and the kids will say, who wants to share their testimony of how 
they first came to know Jesus. And they all raise their hands. They all want to be first. Um, so here again is positive peer pressure at work. Now we know they don't totally understand what they've just done and they're going to have times of doubt and questioning, but we do know that it's a seed that's planted and God is going to fertilize that seed. So I think cousin peer pressure is a wonderful gift that we have when we mix families. Mm -hmm. It's hearing it from somebody other than a sibling. We're talking about Cousin Camp, a grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories that last. The book is published by Ravel, and you can get it now. Just pick up your phone or go online and order it because it's uh, definitely going to be a help during this season and beyond. One of the things that you do before um, the camp is you send out questionnaires to each child's parents before family camp. What kind of questions do you ask, and how does that help you in preparing for the specific children that are going to be a part of, of Cousin Camp? Well, one of the reasons we do this is because we live in Virginia, and we have our oldest daughter and her five children live in our same town, so we see them a lot. But our four other families don't live near us. Uh, We have two in Tennessee, we have one in North Carolina, and then we have another one in Virginia about three hours away. So you don't tend to know the grandchildren that live far away from you because you aren't seeing them on a daily basis. And so one of the things we want to do is we want our our grandkids to come in with us having a sense of knowing them. So we ask the parents questions like this. You know, what do you see the emotional needs are of your five-year-old or your six-year-old? What are their social needs? We think through a grid of of growth in five areas, social, mental, physical, spiritual, and social, mental, physical, spiritual, and social. And they can overlap. For example, does your four-year-old coming to camp for the first time, is, is he a little bit afraid? Is an emotional need that he's not real sure he wants to leave home and he's not real sure he's going to like this? Well, that helps us know how to make sleeping arrangements. Yeah. Generally speaking, we have the siblings sleep together. That gives that new newbie kid, that's what we call our first-year campus, um, the emotional security of familiarity with his siblings. Now, the teenagers don't want to do that. You know, once our kids hit the teen years, the teens like to, you know, buck all on the floor up in, you know, a family room. I mean, we pack kids on the floor. We pack them in closets. <laughs> we sort of have them all over the house. But um, that would be an example. Are there any concerns about your kid? What are your child's favorite things to do? Like, is your child into music? Is, he, is she creative? Does she like to write? Uh, does she like to cook? I've been amazed as we've asked these questions, and I found out things about my grandchildren that I didn't know. Um, and so it's a real, it's sort of like our cheat sheet, quite honestly. Yeah. It's my husband and my cheat sheet. But that also helps us know how to pray for our grandchildren. Um, is one shy? Is one bossy? Is one have leadership gifts? Does one need to learn how to reach out to another one? Uh, and those are all the kind of questions that we would tend to ask. There's so much more in Cousin Camp uh, that we don't have time to talk about, but I would highly recommend it to any adult listening, whether you're talking about your own grandchildren or uh, people in your family you'd like to bring together. This is a great resource. It's practical. It's detailed. And I think any one of us could pull this off with yeah. this book in our hands. Again, Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. Susan Alexander Yates, thank you so much for sharing your experience and these practical uh, tips with us. 
Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. You know, this is such a an unprecedented time. That's the word I'm hearing most often. It's unprecedented. We are sheltering in place. We are socially distancing ourselves from one another. But we don't want to distance ourselves from deep thought and things that are going to feed our minds and feed our souls. Well, I've got a great recommendation. No Safe Spaces. It's a documentary, the number one political documentary and number 11 of all documentaries at the box office in 2019. It finished its theatrical run after garnering the highest fan rating by fans at the, well, the site that maintains this kind of stuff, RottenTomatoes.com, of any film released at 99%. It was preparing for its home entertainment release, but a funny thing happened on the way to the living rooms of Americans all across the Fruited Plain. Well, mainstream Hollywood decided to block its release. They didn't like the content. Well, after being passed over for distribution by major studios like Netflix, The film has decided to take an unusual route by offering the film for a limited release through Salem Media. Now, I work for Salem Media. Salem Media owns KPDQ. And I want to tell you, this is a documentary you must see. It focuses on the freedom of speech and the place where you would expect that freedom to be expressed without restriction is on college and university campuses. Well, sadly, that is not the case. Uh, this this uh, documentary will have you laughing and crying, but most importantly, it will have you thinking deeply and give you a roadmap. What can we do about it? No safe spaces. Right now, uh, Salem is offering a discount, $19.99. That's what it costs to see No Safe Spaces, and you can check it out at nosafespaces.com. But with a discount code SAVE25, you can uh, save 25% because you're a KPDQ listener. Highly recommend it. Must see Because, uh, you know, the day is coming when everybody's going to be back on college campuses and we want to make sure they have the freedom that our Constitution guarantees. NoSafeSpaces.com, discount code SAVE25. Well, speaking of a peculiar time that we're in, we all spent Easter, Resurrection Sunday, socially distanced from one another. And I, I had to smile when I heard about a pastor in Texas. He's from Huntsville, Texas. He paid a pretty touching tribute to his 1,500-member congregation. They can no longer meet in person due to the coronavirus pandemic like the rest of us. Well, Pastor Daniel Irving, the pastor of First United Methodist Church, got the unique idea from a church member after he mentioned, sort of in passing to his online audience, how strange it was to preach to an empty church. Because as you may know, lots of pastors go to the church building, a familiar setting, to present their Sunday morning sermons and the worship team and all of that. So a member reached out to the pastor on Facebook and told him about a priest who put a picture of his parishioners on the pews. So Pastor Irving tried the same thing at his church. Well, after seeing what he'd done, parishioners uh, reached out and told uh, national news and it made headlines. It seems like such a simple thing, said this parishioner, but uh, Pastor Irving took the time and made the effort to print all of these pictures out and tape them to the pews, and I think that shows just what a loving and caring church family we are. Well, the 37-year-old pastor used a special kind of tape to put the 200 photos from the church directory on the pews, which had just been completed. He jokes that when a picture falls, it's like someone is falling asleep during the sermon, which he adds doesn't happen to his knowledge. 
chuckle, chuckle. Well, it gave us an opportunity to remember our uh, folks, praying for them, to recognize even though we're not in physical proximity, in a physical building, we're worshiping together. We are the body of Christ. Well, their pastoral team also has been using that directory to reach out to members to see how everyone is doing. They're phone calling one another. They're FaceTiming. They're Zoom calling. They're taking advantage of the technology to keep connected. Well, the sanctuary was built in the wake of the Spanish flu, this particular church. And the church is in a community with a growing number of uh, cases, especially for many members who are essentially in the prison system. We know we'll get through this and that God has great things in store for the church, our nation, and the world, Pastor Irving says. But for now, it helps him to stand behind the podium in that sanctuary to look out onto familiar faces, some of whom, some of which drop to the, <laughs> the seat of the pew when this tape doesn't hold out. But it's a, it's a good thing. I know that for me, it was just a delight to visit several churches. We sat in the living room, we had our pajamas on. That never happened on an Easter Sunday morning. My mom, my husband, and me, and we started out in one church, and then we ventured over to another, live stream here, Facebook live there, and just enjoyed worship time, singing with the uh, television screen in front of us, um, or opening our Bibles and thumbing through the scriptures that were, um, that were cited. Many of them can still be found online, so look for uh, go to the community page at kpdq.com, or you can go to Facebook and just scroll down and see what you can find there. But there are some great opportunities to just open God's Word. And I so want to um, give a shout-out to worship musicians, many of whom made their way to the sanctuary, socially distanced from one another, but led worship not only to an empty auditorium, but to people who may have never come to their church before. So it's uh, pretty exciting to see how we are connecting to one another in a very unusual set of circumstances, but maintaining a community of, of worship. So while it was um, unusual not to be in a sanctuary on Easter Sunday morning, on Resurrection Sunday, it was uh, wonderful to visit with friends, old friends and new. And I've also been hearing from people I haven't heard from in years. I traveled uh, several years ago, it's been many years now, with a group of musicians uh, throughout Germany and Romania, and, and I think we traveled through Hungary. And um, that particular musician was not a member of the church I was attending, but uh, received an email from him just checking up to see how we were doing. I hadn't spoken to him in years, and it's just been thrilling that people, first of all, have a minute to do that, but then the thoughtfulness to reach out to uh, to me in this case, but to people they don't regularly have contact with. So there is a silver lining to all of this, but of course it is at a great cost. There are people who are suffering with coronavirus. Some are losing their battle with the uh, with COVID-19. Others are suffering as they're healing and going through that that process. So I don't want to minimize the uh, uh, the pain and suffering that goes along with all of uh, all of this. And as we see the death toll for the country and around the world, it's very sobering to consider uh, once again that this is a serious pandemic. And I'm grateful that uh, most of us are taking it very seriously and hope and pray that the rest of us will as well. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. These guys are working from their respective remote locations, as am I. I just had the uh, lawn service for my next-door neighbor come by, and I hope that's not too disruptive. It's an unusual and challenging circumstance in which we are continuing to do our work. 
But we're grateful for you, our listeners, for hanging with us and uh, taking advantage of opportunities to uh, just be together. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.